Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. And remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. And Cooper Talk is presented by Bring Your Body, Bring Your Mind. This is Walk My Mind, which is a holistic approach to wellness that connects the dots of physical, mental, and emotional health. And anyway, so we have a great show today. We have a gentleman who, actually, I watched a clip of him on Letterman today, and he's, he's, not, he's not only a, I mean, it's an old interview, but he's, he's a, started off as a journalist, he's a writer, and it's great, and it's Bill Nadelsader. How you doing, Bill? I'm doing fine, Steve. How are you? Good. Now, now I remember when I talked to you last week, you said you were re- working on a new book. Now, what is that process like for you? Because everyone says writers, you know, they love writing when they sit down, but they always want to get distracted. How's it been for you? Like, how, how, how has your writing process changed throughout the years in your discipline? Oh, God, I, you know, I don't know. It seems to have gotten longer and harder uh, and more isolated and more lonely. Uh, <laughs> you know, maybe it's because I'm just at the tail end of a very long project. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I, you know, when you write, you're kind of at it all the time, whether or not you're actually at the computer, you know, uh, typing words or thinking. So this book has taken me four years and uh, it's it was a bigger subject than I thought it was and you know I didn't see how hard it was going to be so I'll be glad to be done I've enjoyed it there are times when I really like writing I especially like I think it was Dorothy Parker is I enjoy having written um you know so when you finish something it feels great now as a kid did you know you wanted to be a writer I mean how did you you know you've you've had a, a very successful career I know you were a journalist and you were in LA and and you still are in LA but I believe you were born in St. Louis. Now, were you as, as, as a kid, were you and like entertainment, or did you like sports, or or what? When you were a little kid, what did you what did you like to do for fun? I I pretty much was a regular little kid. I played sports. I played the baseball team. I grew up in mid century, uh, mid continent Middle America. Um, you know, uh, had sisters and mother and father stayed together. You know, for sixty years. Uh, but I, I always, I remember high school, I had a, a teacher, a brother John Reptine, who was a very odd sort of intellectual person. And somehow I caught the storytelling bug from him, you know, and he would actually come into class and he would sing old English folk songs. And something about the storytelling bug just got me. And I would go, my parents used to laugh because I would go to the movies and I would come home from a movie and I'd make them sit down and I'd literally tell them the whole story and act out every scene. So storytelling was what what grabbed me from the get-go. It was something that I seemed to somehow my brain is wired to see things as stories. And it was, you know, it turned out to be the only thing, only thing the world would pay me to do. <laughs> it, was, it was my only, only you know, negotiable talent, I guess. Yeah. So when so you that went- was, when you went to college, what was your major? Did you know in high school, you know, because you knew you had a love for storytelling, but did you know how you could make money with that? And is that the way that it led you to college and your major? Well, you know, when I went to college, you know, uh, you, you didn't think about, or we didn't anyway, about making money. There was, there was, that was something that would happen in the future. You didn't think about that. You know, I went to college. I, I, I joke, you know, that I majored in Budweiser when I was in right. college. Um, uh, and, and I think that was true. Uh, and, but I, and I, I went to journalism school. It was the height of the 60s. And, and I, in the journalism school, Missouri University was like a really well, you know, known journalism school. But for some reason, I ended up 
you know, majoring in advertising, and it was very unsatisfying. And I was, I just didn't participate. So <laughs> in my second semester senior year uh, in journalism school, I flunked out and then went back and got a, I remember my, my, uh, um, my counselors in journalism school telling me I was taking too many writing courses. And I was like, huh, how does that work? I want to be a journalist. Well, what they were doing was they were turning out news editorial majors who would end up running, you know, mid, small to mid, you know, sized newspapers. That's what th their curriculum was sort of geared toward at the time. And I just didn't get how you could take too many writing courses if you're going to be a journal journalist. So I, you know, I was happy to leave and I went back and got a degree in English and, you know, and, you know, then at some point decided I would, if I was going to be a writer, you couldn't really be a writer. And in, in, in St. Louis, there weren't many outlets for it. Kind of like you can't be an oceanographer you know, in St. Louis either. So I uh, had to move to a, a major city and Los Angeles was the choice. Now, when you got to L.A., first of all, I always ask people because I, when I moved to L.A., I lived in this little studio apartment and now it's right behind like Sunset and Highland. But back then there was it was like 15 when I moved there 15 years ago, it was um, it was 385 for rent. It was a crappy area. No, that stuff wasn't built up. Where was the first area you moved to when you went out to L.A.? Uh, well, first of all, I had I had uh, uh, was married at the time, and my wife's mother and father lived in you know an upper you know up in Mall you know off the Mulholland Drive. They had a nice place, so we stayed with them for a couple months, and then we moved in with a friend in Manhattan Beach, and then moved to. Westwood, and you know, I just sort of moved around for, you know, for a few years, wherever, you know, and and became a freelance writer at the LA Times. That's how I started. I, you know, I was trying to sell my stories and um, happened to get in. Somehow, I met with the guy who was the editor of the calendar section. His name was Herb Lutovsky, and I had no, you know, background in journalism other than journalism school. I'd never had a real journalism job. And I was trying to sell him story ideas, and he was just put in charge of calendar. He'd come from Minneapolis, so he was he was uh, uh, you know he was Lou Grant. I mean, he literally was Lou Grant. <laughs> he was just like that. He was about 15 years older than me, very droll and kind of crusty, and an old newspaper man. And he sort of took me under his wing, and and he was my mentor. And everything I learned, I learned in the next year and a half from him. Now you ended up in the entertainment writing is now how did that i mean did that happen from calendar did it sit there because it seemed like it'd be a nice next step or was that the contacts you had and were you did you enjoy entertainment writing especially in la oh yeah i mean it was i was i was savvy enough to know that if i was going to sell stories and i'm in los angeles i mean local news in los angeles you know is is, is showbiz and a showbiz story could sell other places uh so the idea was to come up with ideas that i could cover you know, uh, and I could write stories about entertainment. So I would try and sell him ideas. But as he would point out to me that I didn't have any information he wanted to buy. And he said, it's not about stories. It's about information. You have to have a, a story. So you know, he liked me and thought I was really good. And we hit it off real well. And he had this really dry sense of humor that just cracked me up. And most people didn't get, you know, they'd go, huh? And, and I'd be, I'd be falling on the floor laughing. But, you know, so one day I was sitting in a coffee shop and I was just about ready to give up and go back to St. Louis and be defeated. And I was sitting at the Copper Penny coffee shop in, in, uh, in Hollywood. And I looked over and right sitting right next to me was this actor that I recognized from, um, 
from Days of Our Lives, and I had watched Days of Our Lives while I was busy flunking out of college. Instead of going to classes, I would watch Days of Our Lives in the afternoon. And he had been on the show, and he, he had been in an interracial romance on the show with, with, the, with the black girl. And, um, and I, hadn't, I hadn't seen it in a while, so I just leaned over to him. I said, whatever happened to you and Valerie? And he turned to me and said, well, you know, he said, they got a bunch of racist hate mail, and they, they made us break up. And I was like, really? <laughs> and all of a sudden, I had the information that the LA Times wanted. You know, that was a great story. Nobody knew that. Nobody knew that Richard and Valerie had broken up. The only, you know, soap opera's only black-white relationship had been broken up, and the, the, the actress had been let go because of this racist hate mail that came into NBC. So... When I told that to my editor, mentor, Herb, I've got this, he said, oh, my God, that's great. Just write it up. And that was it. I mean, you know, he, he, we, uh, it went in the paper the next day. And it was like, you know, above the fold in calendar. It was a big spread. And the, the, the day after that, I got a call at my home from the Washington Post. And they wanted to pay me again to run it again. You know, it's like, oh, my God. You know, <laughs> so that was it. I never lacked a day of work from then on. I never, there wasn't a day that went by that I wasn't writing for the LA Times or the Washington Post, you know, those two papers, mainly the LA Times, but uh, now, for the next couple of years. Now, when you were writing for the LA Times, I know you uh, you eventually had, I believe, was your first book about the uh, payola scandal and the corporate practices. Did that, oh. did that book come from articles you had written, or how did that book, how did that book come to be? Well, yeah, it was a... Uh, after I wrote for Calendar for a number of years, um, we'll go back to that and the comedy thing. Uh, I uh, was working in the financials. I was transferred to the to the financial section, which they were just getting, they were just building up, and they wanted some sexier stories and just business stories. And I guess they figured that, you know, I was sleazy enough with my showbiz background. Anyway, <laughs> so I, I started. One day they asked me if I wanted to cover uh, the, uh, the recording industry as a beat. For the financial section and the idea was everybody covers you know the record business about what's on the disc you know all the crazy rock stars and the crazy activity and all that stuff that sells records you know the colorful all the trash in hotel rooms that's what everybody wrote about but nobody ever really covered the business practices of this industry and that's what they wanted me to write about and i was like oh, let's go and i didn't know much about that but it you know quickly you know, uh, found out that it was like pretty, pretty sleazy stuff behind behind the scenes, because basically all that other stuff went on so that they could make that big twelve-inch vinyl disc a five-dollar bill. Okay, that's what they that's what they sold for, and it was it was the way the business operated because everything was completely returnable. But those big discs, you know, were five dollars cash, and they could they could be used to pay for things. And record companies did pay for things with them. And usually, the person who lost money on when they took those records and paid for something with them were were the artists who were supposed to be getting a royalty on those records. And I found out that there is no such thing as a real audit in the record industry back then. Uh, you you were if you were an artist, you got to examine your 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 royalty statement, which meant that okay, here's the records which we judge to be sales that we're going to pay you on. And you never saw that. Well, you know, we actually manufactured two million albums, 
but we're only going to pay you for one. And the weird question is, where's the other million? Well, the other million went to other people who used them to pay for things. So that was that was it. I mean, a record company back in the in the 70s, you know, was basically the mint. And the only difference between the U.S. Mint and, and, and the record companies I came to the conclusion was the, the Mint had to account for how many $5 bills it made. The record companies did not. Only how many they sold based on what they defined as a sale. So that opened up, you know, a whole way of looking at this that, that I'd never looked at it before. And, and it didn't take me long to run into organized crime. You follow money, you know, a loose situation like that where... If you can get your whole, your hands on a truckload of albums, the system will absorb them for cash. You know, you don't even have to launder it. It's already laundered, you know, in a way. So that was it. So I started covering, I, I stumbled into an organized crime story right in the middle of someplace where I wasn't expecting to find it. And that went on for a couple of years. And that's when I became an investigative reporter through that story and learning all how to do that. So you really basically, you learned on the fly. I mean, it's something oh, that... Yeah. That's so, absolutely. And the thing is, you know, I think back now and I think, you know, because I see what's going on and I, I see, you know, some, a lot of the mistakes that get made online and stuff like that. And the young people coming up today don't have the advantage I had of, of working for one of the great newspapers <laughs> of the world during the golden age of print journalism in America, where I had a layer of <laughs> expertise and people who would go over my stuff and, and lawyers who would challenge everything. And you got to be so good because you had to, you know, you had to get through a system. You just couldn't just write something to have somebody, oh, that's good. I mean, you had to, you know, you learned everything. And they challenged you on every way you said something. And every, you know, and in a couple of years, you learn, you learn so much that I, I, don't, I don't think that there's, it would take 10 or 15 years to, to get the level of knowledge I was able to acquire in a couple of years at the LA Times back at that. Now, now because we, it was. Okay, oh, sorry. Right. Now, as I say, now you were writing this, you were getting the story, you're doing investigative journalism. How did the book come up? How did you end up making that a book? Was that something that, that you were approached, or was it something that in your when you were writing it, you said, you know, this would be a great book? Well, um, uh, I, you know, the, my the, my editor, calendar editor, who gave my first break, he and I remained very close. Uh, uh, and you know, I was always hanging out down in his office and stuff like that because you know he was he was my guy, and uh, we socialized, and I knew his wife, and you know, and I was down in his office one day on a break or something like that, chatting. Is that he entertained the hell out of me? And he had some young agent in, in his office from New York, and who had just opened up her own agency, and she had was looking for writers, and he called me down. I, you know, sorry, he called me and said, somebody down here in my office I want you to meet. That's what it was. I went down, and I met this woman who was this bright, you know, and she is my, that's 30-some, 40 years ago almost, and uh, she's my agent to this day. And we talked in his office, and I told her what I was working on, this story about MCA and the music business and the mafia, and she said, well, that's, that sounds like it's sellable as a book. I went, oh, that's great. Okay, so... That's what we did. It took a year or so but to get it to where I thought we could actually, you know, go out and offer it as a book uh, because I hadn't found out everything yet. And that's what happened. That's how I sold my first book, um, Stiffed. Now, and it's basically based on about maybe 40 or 50 articles that ran in the LA Times over a couple of years. 
it was all kind of put together and everything in between. Those were all news stories that didn't have a human narrative to them. And what she did was, so I learned how to write a book and how to, how to structure a narrative that way. Uh, because, you know, Irv Lutovsky, the guy who was my editor at Calder, he was really big on long-form narrative. Now, not, not many newspapers were, and not many newspapers could afford to then, and certainly not now, indulge in long-form narrative writing. It took a lot of money to have a reporter, you know. I mean, I once worked on at the LA Times on a story where I, I worked for a solid year for reporting it and didn't write a, didn't write a word. But not many newspapers could afford that then, and certainly not now. Now, now, were you, were you ever worried, like when you're writing about the mafia? I mean, we all hear about the mafia. Does that go through your mind, or is that just something that you you couldn't worry about? Uh, yes and no. I mean, I, what I knew was that they usually don't bother uh, reporters because they're not. You know, you're, you're not finding out anything about the mafia that the, that the authorities don't know. <laughs> the key to covering the mafia is to find out what the authorities know. Uh, they're afraid of what the you know, the authorities finding out something about them, you know. But they don't. The bad publicity is not. They're not going to kill you for that. That's sort of the conventional wisdom. It's held true. There really haven't been, you know, any at least up until the time there were no reporters killed by the Cosa, La Cosa Nostra. Uh, they had pretty strict, you know, uh, a tradition about that. There was one reporter who was killed, but it was it wasn't the mafia. It was a sort of a local crime guy, and it was a you know, the famous Don Bowles case. So I never thought about that. But there was one time when, uh, you know, uh, I was in in uh, New Jersey and Brooklyn covering this mob story. And and uh, and I'd been working on it a long time. And the characters in it had sort of taken on the, they, they felt to me, they, they felt to me like characters. I'm writing about these guys, this family of guys who, who made the movie Deep Throat, the Perino family. And then they made, you know, the first really, really successful uh, porno movie. And then they, they, they took, you know, the $100 million in cash they made from that. And they opened up a movie company in Hollywood, and, uh, which has never, had never been done before. Uh, and so I was back in Bensonhurst, you know, you know, covering this and that and digging up documents and talking to organized crime detectives and all that. And I came back to L.A. and... The day after I got back to L.A. after this, this big research trip, two of the people that I'm writing about, there was a hit. And and they were shotgunned, you know, right on the street. They had run down the street. One of them was killed and one of them was, you know, critically wounded. And all of a sudden it was like, whoa, wait a minute. That, that guy is, really is a character. He's not just somebody on my in my notes. You know, that guy is dead. You know, and I was right there last week. So, so you, you really right away thought that wow was was my asking questions did have something to do with that you know and it was a little unnerving it did not in the end but you do you know you do you do worry about that sometimes i never was afraid for my life okay um, it could have just been foolishness for my part but you know i wasn't now when did you know because i'm watching i'm dying up here and when okay. did your when did your love or did you have love for comedy? Or how did that whole start? And I saw your interview with Letterman. I want to talk about that. But how did how would, were you selected to be on that scene? And what was it like reporting on the comedy scene? Because back then, you know, it wasn't that it was getting big. You, you know, I mean, how did that happen? And and what did you think of when you first hit that scene? And how did you see it grow? Well, this 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 predates the organized crime thing, and that they, they do connect. 
it was my the same editor who became my my, my mentor. Uh, there was two things that I loved more than anything in life when I was a young man. It was was pop, not pop music, but but rock and roll music. You know, the music business and comedy. I I grew up just like all the guys in my book. You know, they watching every every comic on television. I bought George Carlin's albums. I listened to you know that was it. I was. And then one day, my editor, Irv, calls me in the office, and this is before I'd really had a beat of any kind. I was just doing assignments, this and that, whatever he'd come up with or whatever I'd come up with. And he said that, you know, there's something going on here, I think, in, in, the, in the comedy scene here in town that has the feel of Greenwich Village in the 60s. There's all these young people coming out here, uh, and it's kind of a different kind of comedy. And he used to go to places. He was a, sort of a cabaret kind of guy. And he said, would you cover it? And I, and I thought, well, this is just great. Are you kidding me? I get to go, you know, hang out on the comedy club scene. And the great thing about it was there had never been any reporter on the comedy club scene. You know, there, there had never been that before. And, and all of a sudden, the Los Angeles Times was dedicating it. This is to show you how much time and money they had, you know, space they had, that they would assign somebody to the comedy club scene. And at that time, it was like 1977, I think. So it was it had been it had been going on for a couple of years, but it hadn't really taken off yet. So that the guys who were, and it was mostly guys for reasons I'll explain. Uh, you know, who were coming into town? Uh, it was you know, Johnny Carson had moved the Carson show, so all the class clowns around the country, they knew that you you had to get on the Carson show to make to make a living, to be a, a comic. And the people who were getting on the, on the Carson show were going to this club called the Comedy Store because he would say so. He'd say, here's a kid who's in town. He's playing the Comedy Store. Would you welcome, please, so-and-so. And all the class clowns out there were sitting in front of their televisions like I was when I was a little younger. Um, you know, and they went, oh, my God. And they packed their suitcase. And they, there's this invisible migration to Los Angeles. So I come into it two years into that. And the people who were on the local club scene and who were not known yet to the large American public would be, you know, Robin Williams and, and Jay Leno and Dave, Dave Letterman and, and, and anybody you can think of of that age who, you know, these are my generation. These are, these are people who are my age. And, and I was just like them. We, they, we had, when I got assigned to that beat, we were all recent, you know, emigres to Los Angeles. And we were about the same age. And my job was to find out who was happening, what's going on there, who's going to be the next, uh, you know, star uh and and i got to go to all the clubs and, and because i was the los angeles times to them the times was that they there you couldn't send tapes around to anybody there was no videotape back in in, in the mid 70s it hadn't come out yet so the only way you could be seen is, is if you played in a club where the tonight show scouts would come in you know you couldn't send something to them and, you know, there, there were no t TV shows with comics except the Carson show. Um, so they they wanted to get in front of me. You know, they wanted to, you know, to, to attract my attention because if I'd write about them, then they, you know, and that was it. So uh, it was really easy to gain access and, and get in to see anybody and talk to them and blah, blah, blah. And they would call me and I, because I became sort of their guy. Um, you know, I remember when we decided to do a story on Andy Kaufman who hadn't really broken big. He had just started on, on taxi, but he really wasn't really known yet. And he called me up at my house one night and, you know, said he wanted to come by, <laughs> you know, and we were going to do, we had an interview set up 
Uh, for like a few days later, a week later, he just called up one night and says, hi, Sandy. I said, hi, Andy. How you doing? Can I come by your house tonight and talk? Well, okay. All right. So he showed up, you know, half an hour later at my house, had a suitcase full of changes of clothes, and, um, you know, and he proceeded to do his entire act on my patio with the, with the change of outfits, and uh, he would pantomime the whole thing. It was bizarre. It's bizarre. So that's that's kind of what I walked into. Got to know Andy, you know. Now, did you get a good interview with him after that, or was it just his performance oh, yeah. and didn't yeah, leave? I, I'm, yeah, and I'm the only one who ever got an interview with at that time with with Tony Clifton. I insisted that that uh, that that I get the interview with Tony Clifton. And so they they had this very elaborate thing they did because I don't know if people be able to know who Tony Clifton was now, but he was this alter ego that Andy played. He was really obnoxious. Uh, lounge singer and he denied that he was tony clifton there were two different people but you know everybody knew it was andy uh maybe andy didn't but everybody else did <laughs> <laughs> and uh so so they he was he had convinced the producers of taxi to hire tony for a week while andy was off and tony was going to have this bit thing and as it turns out you know, Tony showed up on the set drunk and with hookers, and he had hookers in his trailer, and he was upsetting everyone. And this is all true. This wasn't. Pretend. He did upset everybody, and he did have hookers, and he was drunk, or he had whiskey anyway. And he was causing um, uh, a disturbance, and the rest of the cast was pissed. So they, they decided that the only way they could get through to Andy was, to, okay, we'll go along with Andy. We'll tell Andy we're going to fire Tony Clifton. And they fired Tony Clifton, but his manager, George Shapiro, managed to have me on the set without telling me what was going to happen. I was on the set with a camera as this whole thing unfolded. And they, you know, Tony comes walking onto the, to the set, you know, kind of really being real obnoxious. And, and, and the cast is clearly furious at him. And they tell him he's fired and the, and the guards come and, and they get into a wrestling match and there's a fight. And I'm there with my camera, so I take the pictures and watch him get hauled out in the alley, fighting the whole way. His, his, his wig is coming off. And they try and take my camera, and then, you know, one of Andy's minions grabs it and runs off with it. So, anyway, that picture of him being manhandled off the set of, of Taxi is still out there on, on the Internet. <laughs> you know, every now and then someone publishes it, and they have to pay me, so it's sort of funny. But that's the kind of stuff that, I, you know, you would end up talking to these comics. And, you know, it wasn't hard to, you know, it, it, if I wanted to talk to Richard Lewis, it wasn't hard because it was in Richard's interest, you know. They were like, oh, yeah, the LA Times, you know, wow, that's great. You know, they, they would all agree. And I got to know Richard really well. I mean, Richard had a particular affinity for Richard. He was, he was a, Richard was interesting because, you know, he was, he was the exact same stay off the stage as on the stage. There was no artifice there other than he learned to kind of streamline it for the stage, but it was exactly who it was. So I got to know them all. We were all the same age and, you know, and there were no, there were not no, but there was not many women. Uh, and, it, you know, at the time it was starting to be a controversy, but it was, God, it was probably 10 to 1 men. And, and it was partly because in my generation there was always class clowns. I was always one of them, you know. But there were no girls who were class clowns in the 50s and 60s. That, that wasn't, you know, it wasn't part of what they did. Or they, maybe they weren't given permission to or whatever else. So they didn't have this idea, I'm going to go be a comic. Some of them did, but they, you know, they, they were fewer and further between than, than the males. So uh, it, was, it was very much a, a male-dominated uh, um, 
profession back at the time. Now, as you were writing these articles, they were going through the paper, um, when did you sit there and when did the strike start and did you see that coming? And I mean, and w w were you talking to both sides? Like, did you ever talk to Mitzi when you were doing these articles or was oh, it you well, just... Yeah, oh, yeah, I thought, well, I, I knew, by that time I knew Mitzi because Mitzi had a publicist uh, uh, who kind of, you know, served as the middle person for a lot of the comics. Her name was Estelle Endler and she was great. She was Mitzi's publicist, but she would sort of handle publicity for a bunch of comics and they would pay her. Uh, and so she would... You know, when I when I would say, okay, I, I need to know who the next person is. Who do you, who do you, she would fill me in on stuff. You know, the publicists were in, in, invaluable back in the day because they knew everything. She knew a hundred comics. It would have taken me, you know. So she would help out, and um, so I got to know. I knew Mitzi. We had never spoken, you know, like in an interview because there was no reason for her to do an interview. And I knew a lot of comics, and 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 I did not see the uh, the strike coming because. Before, Prior to it happening, I don't think that they, you know, they, they were about their own careers, and that's what they wanted to talk to the Los Angeles Times about. They weren't going to talk about anything controversial and, and be, be seen speaking out of. So I knew nothing about it until it hit. And, you know, I was like, wow, there's a strike of the comics. The comics are going on strike. Wow, I knew they didn't get paid, but no one complained about it, you know, to me. Um, I had never heard it. But maybe it was I just wasn't open to it because there was so much fun covering the other part of it. I didn't pay attention. Uh, I was I was young too. I was twenty, you know, seven years old, and not 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 that not that long out of St. Louis Mo. So you know, it wasn't like I was particularly sophisticated about that stuff. So, and then when it happened, I remember that, that there was all these. You know, I went down and covered it, and uh, there were all these news trucks outside there on the street on Sunset covering this, and there were reporters doing stand up, and Connie Chung was there. And, and everybody was kind of playing it for laughs, and I did kind of too. I didn't quite, you know, it didn't hit me as, you know, comedians going on strike sounded like a funny idea, and they had funny signs, and you know, they were out there. And it was, it was, it seemed like kind of a spoof sort of, until I started talking to them, you know, and and I remember the person who really kind of brought me up short was after the first story ran that I ran, and then after the first story, you know, the rest of the. The journalism, they all kind of went away. You know, nobody stuck with it more than a night. The TV, they could, it was one night. It was one I saw it was goof, you know. And I remember the next night I went, and Elaine Boozer came up and literally put her finger in my chest and poked me, you know, and she was irritated that I'd made light of it. And, um, and you know, let me know that, you know, these people here standing on line, these people here are risking their entire career to be standing here. You know, to do this, they might not ever work there again, which means that, you know, but they're doing this and you're making you're, you're playing the light. And I was like, wow, we really kind of and she was so vehement and so passionate about it. And so I started talking to him about that. And then I started asking him questions once the, the strike had broken and they were doing it and it was in public and they were trying to get people to interview him. It was easy to get them to talk. You know, and I would I would go to the to the strike meetings. They were completely open. They let me walk in, take any notes. I, you know, they they guarded themselves in some ways, I'm sure. But but I was able to to you know, and, and there was no other reporter that did that. And I don't know why, but I guess nobody saw it as comedians being on strike as a very serious, ongoing issue. And so I became their guy, which then again, they were more open to me and they would call me and then, you know, and you would get to know some of their problems because they'd call you late at night and stuff like that. So, um, 
And then, then you know, uh, the strike went on. And during that, I talked to Mitzi. You know, she, I, you know, I convinced her folks. I said, look, you know, she, she needs to talk. You know, they're telling her side. She needs to see their side. She needs to tell her side. So she sat down and talked to me. She was available, uh, angry, and, you know, and, and, and just did not see it the way they saw it. Uh, and uh, th- that was never going to change. And it did not, you know, for the next 30 years. Uh, but I got all sides of it. And then in the middle, uh, you know, then the strike, you know, uh, went on and they, they settled. And then that, the, the, the story of the, of the, the tragic story that I don't really want to give away for anybody who might want to read the, might want to buy and read the book, um, you know, sort of happened. And, uh, we did a really big story in the LA times on that. By that time, by that time, you know, my editor was totally committed to this, and when when that happened, we did like a big four or five pages inside the calendar, which was a big thing. They had never done that before about this performer and what happened to him and the story of his life, and as an example of how tough it is to try and make it as a comic. Uh, and it was it was pretty dramatic, and it was the first long form narrative thing that I had really, you know, done for you know, for the paper. And, you know, and my editor recognized it and we ran it. And then, you know, after that, uh, it was a big emotional thing. And I, it was a two-year run on that story that I covered. And I asked off the comedy beat because it was dark. It was too dark. You know? I remember telling her, can I do something lighter? And I ended up covering Organized Crime, which was more right. <laughs> no. comedy, right? Now, when yeah. you're when you're on the on the comedy scene back when you were watching him, was there any acts that made it really big that you were surprised, and then was there any acts that you thought would have made it really big and they didn't? Let me think. Off the top of my head, no. I think I think I got to see them in such a way that you knew who was really good and stable and really knew their shit. I don't know if I can say who, who, you know, who, who could really perform. And, and, and you know, and so, no, I, I, nobody, nobody surprised me that I can think of. Uh, hmm, no. no. I mean, yeah, I, I could see the Letterman and Leno and they were like, you know, a duo. They were, they were very tight and they were always kind of standing around together. Uh, that they were, you know, solid guys, um, um, good work ethic, and you saw that about everybody. If you, if you saw them, around, you know, you, you you could kind of get who was unstable, who was crazy. There were some that you could see that you know, you'd go in there and they'd be in there, you know, totally wasted trying to do comedy, and you would know that that well, that's not going to work, you know. <laughs> so I wouldn't be surprised when they didn't they didn't make it, uh, but I didn't I didn't foresee at the time. You know how big comedy was going to get in 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 the wake of this because right after the strike was over and they settled and they finally got paid and just because of the way things were that the comedy business just broke wide open and everybody was trying to hire comics for everything you know and sitcoms and everything like that and and a lot of people who were you know okay talents not not robin williams talent not not letterman or leno or richard lewis talent or you know whatever else went on to have pretty good careers over the next you know um 10 years you know touring touring around america doing the water tank towns you know and because some club somewhere opened in it's 
comedy is easy. You just need a stool and a microphone, and you know that's it. it. Doesn't cost much to put it on. You know, it's not like you need a stage and sound equipment and all that stuff. So it was a it was a cheap form of entertainment that people, the club owners could offer. And uh, every town in America, within two or three years after all this happening with the strike at the comedy store, had at least one, possibly five comedy comedy clubs. In St. Louis, you know, all of a sudden had two. Uh, and I don't think anyone had ever thought, <laughs> oh, yeah, let's, make this, let's have a comedy club in St. Louis. No. You know, now, maybe a theater. Now, why, why did it take so long for you to write the book? I mean, it seemed like... A, from your beat to writing the book, I'm dying up here. When, how long well, did it take, and and what were you doing it, in between then? Well, I went ahead, I went ahead and uh, you know I, I uh, worked at the LA Times for 12 years and did cover every kind of every kind of everything. Covered the music business after that. That's when I did the music business after that. And and the uh, the, um, the, the the comedy store story and then the story of Steve Lebetkin and, and Richard Lewis and all those guys always stuck with me because it was the thing that sort of launched my career. And and you know, ten years after, you know, I'd be in a cab and. You know, somebody, you know, you're the guy that wrote the story about the comedian? Yeah, yeah, you know, it's just, it just never went away. And so it always hung with me emotionally. It was a story that rang, rang me out emotionally by the time it was done, which is why I said, you know, I don't want to do the comedy thing anymore. It's, you know, uh, and, but I didn't think of it again until, uh, you know, maybe, I guess now it's maybe eight years ago, um, coming up on like the 28th anniversary of all that happening. Um, I was reading the LA Times, I was reading the obit section, and it said that, uh, that George Miller, uh, who was one of the comics back then, you know, had died. He died of leukemia at the age of 61 or whatever it was, uh, and uh, I remember George really well. I always liked George. George was a great guy, and he was one of my sources, and he was very honest. He was outspoken. He took a chance, you know, and so I always had a lot of affection for George, and I was just shocked that, that George had died, and and, uh, uh, and so much time had passed, and, and wow, and I knew that he was Dave's best friend, and they lived right across the street, you know, in, in the apartment building right across the street, and it said in the obit that, that there was going to be be a uh, uh, public uh, memorial for him on a Sunday afternoon at the Laugh Factory, which is just down the street from the um, from the uh, uh, comedy store. So uh, it was going to be open to the public. So I thought, well, you know what? I'm going to go. I'm going to go. I'm going to go see that. It's you know, I'll see those guys that I haven't seen in a long time, and I'll see who comes back. Maybe it'll be like this big chill moment that they'll all come back. And when I walked in, it it was. It was just like that. It was they. They all showed up except Letterman, who was ill. And uh, here were all these guys, and we were all middle aged now, and it didn't look the same. Um, but you know, and the but and the guys who had crossed the picket line back then were over here, and they didn't mix with the guys who who threw up the picket line. So that was interesting. And then when they and, and Tom Dreesen, uh, who was the, the leader of the strike faction, who was that? He was the the MC of, of this, this this memorial for George. Just like he you know he like he'd never left the, the scene. You know, he had the microphone in his hand. He was there. It was like in a way like no time had passed. And when they got up to talk about George and what a great guy he was and what they remembered, now they had continued. Some of them had known him for twenty five years. And, these, some of these people were famous and had gone on to lead these big, you know, big lives. 
But when they got up to talk about George, as I was sitting there taking all this in, every one of them talked about only the four-year period between 1975 and 1979 when the strike happened. And, that, and, and that's what they all remembered as the time of their life. When they were unknown, struggling, making no money, you know, but they all knew each other on a really gut level. And that's what they talked about. And it just hit me like a two by four to the forehead. Oh, my God, this is a book. It wasn't a book back then necessarily because they weren't really, you know, willing to talk about it. And it was very emotional what happened. And you could see it still affected their lives. And I found that out really quickly when I ended up talking to them. That they And they were much more talkative and more perceptive about what was going on than they were back then because they're looking at it through, you know, through the through memory. It's, it, it, you know, they're, they're, they're 50 years old now, so they have a better perspective on it and they're not as worried about what they say and they're more in touch with how they felt about it. So it, it was a great story. And, I, you know, it wasn't hard to sell it, you know. As a matter of fact, I was working on another book for my publisher, and I, I put it aside. So look, I got I've got something better. And we just canned that, and they said, okay, yeah, we like that one. Now, how long well, did it take? How long did it take you to write? Just for the fact, because you knew the subject and had a lot of background. Um, it didn't. You know, it, it was it was the easiest book I ever wrote because I knew the material. I mean, and I, I still had all. You know, I'm, I'm a typical journalist. I had all my files. I had all my interviews with Richard and everybody. You know, I had documents. I had boxes full of documents. All my clips from the LA Times and was, you know, in, in my my in my storage area, you know. So I had so all I had to do was call everybody up and just go back over it again. It was real easy. Uh, it didn't require a lot of fresh you know, I didn't have to go dig up documents and then, you know, you had to track people down and you had to find out who would talk and who, you know. And uh it was it was a breeze. It was I wish you know, the two cents had been so easy. This was this was this felt like the one that I was made to write. Now, how did it, it sell? Sort of came to me that way, you know. It seemed full circle. Now, now, how did it sell when you first when it first hit the market? Were people really interested? And then, did you get on Letterman because you had known David? No, I got on. I got on Letterman. Uh, it did not sell very well uh, in the beginning. It got some, um, you know, got some good reviews. Nobody, nobody trashed it. Uh, the LA Times oddly, you know, kind of had some freelance guy sort of do this sort of wishy-washy thing. I couldn't figure out why they didn't play it up because it was a story. It was a story they owned, and um, they didn't. The, the, the entertainment editors didn't get that this was man. This was your turf, you know. They didn't with the with the you know, so um, so it didn't do particularly well. I was it, it helped me fin you know financially and you know my in terms of publishing. It was it was a credit credible book for the publishing business. So I never had a problem again selling a book, but it didn't become a bestseller uh, particularly. Although they say it's a bestseller, so I guess they know that somehow. It didn't reflect it in my my in my bank account, uh, but. Um, but you know, then and then I, I got on Letterman mainly because because uh, he's still best friends with with Tom Greeson, and Tom Greeson is kind of the hero of the story, uh, you know. And, and Tom was really proud of that was his legacy that he was you know. And, and when the book came out, Tom was approached all the time. So young comics would come to him, come up to him in a club and say, "Man, I read that book, 
And I, I never knew that about you. And I'm really thank you for what you're doing because I got paid the first time I got him on stage, and you and you did that. So I thank you for you know. And he got he just you know he it just made him feel great, and he deserved it because that's it's true. Um, so he asked Dave. You know, Dave, I don't, I don't think Dave has read the, the book to this day, only because Dave wouldn't read it because you got to know Dave. Dave would go, well, I, I don't need to read the book. I was there. I, I, you know, I don't want to read you know, that. So, so, you know, I think Tom asked Dave to do it as a favor. Would you put Bill on? Would you talk about the book? I really, you know, and Dave did. Next thing I know, I get a call from Letterman's office, and they say, can you be on the show and such and such, and, you know, to my agent. And I said, sure. And so we went. It was, it was uh, he couldn't have been nicer. It could have been more, you know, and, it, and it's funny because because you know I think I did the first article, first newspaper article on Day when he was an unknown uh, that mentioned that he was that all, among all his peers he was considered to be the likely candidate to to, to fill Johnny's shoes. This is before anything had ever been written about that. Dave hadn't, I don't think he'd even, you know, uh, subhosted at that point. He'd been on, but he wasn't known. So. So he, but so Dave knew who I was. We had talked during the period of time that, and so, but again, it was it was 28 years later. Here we were sitting in his lawyer's office in 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 New York talking about the old times. So now, that was it in the book. You know, we sit down. He goes, "Hey, Bill, how you doing? How long has it been?" <laughs> you know, and I said, "I think it's been 28 years, Dave." <laughs> yeah. Now, how did it go from book? to the TV series, and did I come out of nowhere? Because I used to do stand-up comedy. I did the Philadelphia Circuit. I was on the road. And actually, Tom Treason has been on my show, and I'm actually looking at his book right on my bookshelf, the Tim and Tom story about him and, yeah, yeah. and Tim yeah. Reed. But, um, and he's right. The first time, well, I mean, besides open mics, the first time, you know, we got part of the door. I got like eight bucks for my first gig, and it was the happiest day of my life, and my name was in the paper. <laughs> but, um, but, you know, and I was, I was glad to see it, and, you know, because... I'm a comedy fan, even though I don't want to do stand-up anymore, and it's great also because they're using people like Kathy Laban and Rick Overton, some great people. John Campanera showed up. Um, but how does it go from being a book to TV series, and did that, did that come out of nowhere? And you must have been like, hey, this is pretty damn cool. Well, yeah, yes, yeah. But but the way those things happen, you know, that happened right away. When, when the book came out, you know, I, I had an agent, I was an agent, my, my agency was CAA, I think, at the time. So they hooked it up around town, and I had all kinds of meetings, and everybody kind of, I had really good interest, people wanted to, to option it. And um, um, so we ended up optioning it to Jim Carrey, okay? Uh, but options are, you know, there's not a whole lot of money in options, and you, it's got to, you know, get get made first. It, it's a long road between when, between when you option it and somebody actually makes it. So Carrey, I think, held the option for... You know, and he had to pay X amount of dollars, you know, for to, to keep it, uh, according to the contract, uh, for four years before they got a deal. And then it was two years after that before it got made. So so that's six years right there that it takes. It, it, wasn't, it, it didn't require anything on my part other than to say, okay, you know, send a check here. Now, when they said it was going to go as a series, did they – bring you in to be a consultant or did they sit there and just see this is our book we're not going to deal with him or how did that work i don't know uh they didn't bring me in to be a consultant they could have they did not um i can understand why they wouldn't um because you know if you're going to change it a lot if you're going to make it you know you don't want to have to deal with 
and they don't know me. I'm just as they, they consume it. I'd just be difficult. And, I don't want to do that. You know, so you know, they, you know. I think they. I think Tom uh, Dreesen was the consultant um, on it, uh, and I knew that they were gonna. I mean, it wasn't a surprise to me that they fictionalized it. I knew they they would, and I I understood that too because I mean the the book the storyline of the book, as you know, it's just basically it's. It covers a two-year period, but it's, most of it is, is, takes place in, in a six-month period. Okay, so if you're going to do it as a ongoing television series, which hopefully will be on for five years or more, you're going to have to pad that out in terms of what, what's in it. You can't, and you can't if you're going to go with the real characters, and it's going to be David Letterman saying this and that. It, well, he didn't say that, and he wasn't in that scene, and he might object to it, and then you got an issue. So I can see why they they decided to fictionalize it, and then it's, you know that's that's the game you play when you when you sell your book. You you don't get to say uh, necessarily unless your contract says you do, and not many of them do. <laughs> you know, unless you are the executive producer or whatever else, which I was not. So you know, so it's it's you know it, it's this it's the same world. It's just a different story. Is my book? The world is the same. Uh, although they, I think they set it, they set theirs in '73. Mine, you know, didn't go back that far, uh, and uh, it it reflects sort of a darker time, kind of. If you were there, uh, Jim, Jim Carrey went through the system. You know, he know he knows that he was he had been trying to do something on this for a while, and uh, my book came out. And, you know, they liked it. They liked the title, and why not option that? So that's how that happened. Uh, but uh, I don't know where I was going with that, but <laughs> that's that's what happens, you know. So so uh, uh, I wasn't surprised when the, when they fictionalized it. And they, and they, so it's they've set theirs in '73, and I guess they're gonna. The idea is the long range Bible or whatever they call it will go will go to the strike because the story of getting paid and not paid is is ongoing in the series. I mean, I've, I've watched all the episodes so far, so it's an ongoing thing. It's got to lead somewhere. So they're clearly going to, if they keep, if they get picked up, you know, again, I, I assume they will. I don't, I don't know why they wouldn't. It's, you know, it's a good show and it's got big people in it um, that they, you know, so imagine that's where they're going. What is it like for you to watch that show when they sit there, you know, based on your book and thinking back when you were just a guy who, you know, drank too much beer in college. Did you ever sit there and think, wow, this has been quite a trip? I mean, it's got to be cool just because you see your name. It's based on your book. I mean, I, I said I watched the show. I mean, what is what goes through your head when you see that? You sit there and go, man, that's really, really cool. Or you just go, hey, it's just another day at the office. Kind of more the latter. <laughs> you know, I mean, I've been, you know, it's, it's, uh, it doesn't make me think of those times. I mean, I have enough you know, think of those times, you know, otherwise, I don't, the show doesn't make me think of those times, um, um, because those aren't the characters I knew, uh, that's, you know, so that doesn't, I have all sorts of feelings about those times, um, but it, it, what's funny though, with what I did, what I did experience, which I wasn't ex expecting, when all of a sudden, you know, I wrote the book, you know, years ago, and you know, all my friends now write a book, and my, you know, my, my kids, I have fairly young kids, you know, for for a man my years, um, you know, I've got a, a daughter who's eighteen, a son who's twenty five, and you know, and you see, you talk about somebody who lasts it, you know, when when my son's friends find out that that I knew Andy Kaufman. 
you know, to talk to. They, they're just like virtually what? Because you know, he's huge with 25 girls. They cannot believe that. I mean, they've known me for years, but all of a sudden I have this new credibility. <laughs> and now there's, they're making a movie, they're making a TV show out of this book. Well, there's just new credibility, which is just perception. It's not, you know, you, when you've been doing this, you know it's really just perception. And then there was billboards all over town, and I got, you know, stuff on Facebook like, oh, my God, congratulations, Bill. I had nothing, you know, you, you want to say, I had nothing to do with that billboard. That's nothing. That book was written eight years ago. So, you know, you can, but so what? You know, you just enjoy it. And, uh, uh, you know, and, and, but I tell you, I never got so many comments as when, when that, those billboards went up. It was like, you know, my life had finally been, life and work had finally been confirmed because I had a billboard on, on Sunset Boulevard. You know? Now, have, have sales going up? Have There's sales, a Christmas about that. Have, have sales going on up on the book? Because now people are seeing it and they'll sit there and go, you know, especially if they know it's fictional, they want to hear the real story. Have you noticed an up, up, uh, increase in your sales in the book? Yeah, I think it's gone up some, but that hasn't gone through the roof. I mean, television doesn't sell a lot of books, especially not television that's the, to that audience. I mean, they're, they're clearly going for the millennial audience with that show. And I, I understand it because the county is very big. And, you know, my kids and all their friends just, just you know, they need to show up. Uh, that's who they're going for. But th those people don't go out. They don't go, I'm going to go buy that book. I mean, I have a lot of people who are now buying it, but it's not not tens or hundreds of thousands of people going out, rushing out to buy the book. So, uh, but, you know, it's, it, all, it all helps, you know. I'm 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 experiencing a moment of hotness <laughs> in the business, you know. So. Now, would you would you be interested in getting involved in TV, or is that something that just you're going to stick to writing your novels? No, no, I'm 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 uh, you know I've got a couple projects now that we're trying. My my book, uh, my my last book, uh, um, Bitter Brew, Bitter Brew, which was a New York Times bestseller. We're 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 in negotiations with several people on that. Uh, to do that as a as a uh, well as something maybe a maybe a limited run series or you know whatever else and and, uh, and I would I definitely want to I want to get involved uh, you know having seen you know the first time it happens oh sure that'd be great then go go do it but then you realize hey I'd, well you know I'd, I'd like to be involved in that so I think if what whatever happens next with with bitter brew and the book book I'm working now which seems to have that sort of potential I I find out that I realize when I'm writing. Uh, books now, and maybe I was always this way, but I'm, I'm aware of it. I became aware that when, you, when you're writing a book that, that every chapter needs a really defining scene that, you know, that, that and, and, I, and it's very visual, you know, when you write it that way. And so it's, I can feel that I think I'm ready to get more involved and do it. And, I, and plus the fact that this last book, you know, four years, two and a half years of research, <laughs> you know, and you don't get paid in between. So, yeah, it's, uh, it'd be nice to have a, a steadier gig, I guess. And then now the new the new book, it's uh, how far are you into that? Are you almost done? I'm almost done. Uh, and uh, um, it's about it's about the birth and rise to greatness of the U.S. car business, uh, as told through the life of a guy named Harley Earl, who is the guy who invented the profession of automobile styling back in the 1920s. And he came up with a way that allowed GM to change its look of all of its cars every year. 
and to do it on a big mass industrial scale. And he was a designer, and he but he was also very savvy, you know. And and he, he's the father. He created the Corvette. He did all these things, and he's best known for what's probably one of his least accomplishments is he's the guys who guy who put fins on cars in the fifties. Oh, cool. So, so that's the title of the book is fins. Awesome. And, and fins is, I use fins as kind of a metaphor. It's all about when America, it's, it's basically about when America was great. And it's about how America, the American economy became the car economy. And we, we became what we became because we were the country to learn how to mass produce and market cars to the world and no one ever you know up until that time had ever done that you know 80 90 percent of the cars made on earth prior to 1959 were made in america um you know and uh and because of the, those manufacturing facilities were which were up and running in 1940 when we were attacked by you know went to war with three countries you know in, in world war ii and when, when we were attacked at pearl harbor Within 36 hours, we were at war with three countries on two different continents that had a total of something like 13 million men under arms. We had the 18th largest army on Earth. So we were way overmatched. But because we had all these car companies that, that had invented mass production and, could, and new wheeled vehicles, you know, we were able in no time at all, we were the best equipped country on the, on the globe to wage global warfare. And that changed everything. And we were able to completely, you know, not only supply ourselves, but all our allies within months. You know, and that's, you know, you could make the case that the car industry won, won World War II. Exactly. Well, that's awesome. But I didn't know that. I didn't know that going into the story of Harley Lear. See that? You, you learn stuff. You learn stuff new every day. Yeah. You know, I, I want to thank you for coming on. Um, I, I was watching the show and then I added you as a friend on Facebook. That's how I always get my guests. You know, I sit there, I'll watch. If I know them, I get them on. But if I, if I see someone, I go, I know this person would be a good guest. And I'm glad I got you on. And uh, now, now, how can people find, keep up with your career? Well, they can they can uh, catch me on uh, on Facebook or you know I've I've got to get my face you know I've been terrible about my website and I got to get somebody to redo it so it's sort of like moribund right now but as soon as I get done with this book uh, I'm going to get in there and redo it and they can you know BillMadelCedar.com is is uh, is one is my I think what is what it is um, that's about it. All right, well, so thank can, you. Thank you for coming on, people. So go check him out. And he's it's, it's a very long spelling. So just Google, I'm dying up here, writer, and then you'll find it because it's it's a long name. So people, go, yeah. to, go to his website, and he's going to be updating it. Go buy his books because they're good. So go buy his books. Uh, go to my website, coopertalk.net. I have over uh, 600 episodes up there. And also you can email me, cooper, at coopertalk.net. Twitter, I'm at coopertalk. And Instagram, I'm coopertalk1. So anyway, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm running as hip as my guest. Don't forget... Take your vitamins, drink your water, eat your vegetables, and remember, Cooper Talk is presented by Walk My Mind. Bring your body, bring your mind. This is Walk My Mind. You guys have a great day. Thanks. Thanks, Steve.